Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle 24 with me, Carlotta Rebello. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle 24, with highlights from our studios here at Midori House and from around the world. This week, we examine the first 100 days of Joe Biden's presidency. What we have mostly been learning is what it is like to have, once again, a relatively sane and functional human being who thinks prior to speaking and acting, occupies Earth's most powerful office, rather than a frantic attention-seeking clown burbling whatever mad nonsense has most recently popped into his derelict funfair of a brain. Plus, as streams and sales for the music of solo artists soar, we'll ponder whatever happened to the once all-powerful pop group. In a way, I have to agree that looking at the charts, groups did lose their influence to solo artists. Although, it must be added that this is not the case across all countries. Just look at the rise and rise of K-pop bands such as BTS and Blackpink. All that and much, much more over the next hour here on The Curator with me, Carlotta Rebello. And we begin this week's curator with a milestone. U.S. President Joe Biden has now reached 100 days in office, a feat that we've been tracking across Monocle 24. In an address to a joint session of Congress this week, the president pledged a -a once-in-a-generation spending plan, which amounts to nearly $4 trillion in what has been described as the largest overhaul of U.S. benefits since the 1960s. Let's then take a look back at Biden's first 100 days in office, what he has achieved and some of the challenges still ahead. First up, we turn to Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, who brings us this special edition of What We Learned. We learned this week that the producers had had another one of their mercifully occasional ideas for a theme. We thank you for your sympathy at this difficult time. But we learned, as we usually, if grudgingly, do at such moments, that the idea had some, we emphasise some, merit. That we reflect on what we have learned not from the last seven days, as is our usual remit, but on the last 100 More specifically, the last 100 days, which have been the first 100 days of the US presidency of Joe Biden. (laughs) Well, indeed. But that, we have learned, kind of is President Biden's pitch. You might even say that the tedium is the message. Thanks. We're warming up to this. What we have mostly been learning is what it is like to have, once again, a relatively sane and functional human being who thinks prior to speaking and acting, occupying Earth's most powerful office, rather than a frantic attention-seeking clown burbling whatever mad nonsense has most recently popped into his derelict funfair of a brain. Who who does cucumbers around here? Because I like cucumbers. I'm the only one. I like cucumbers. 74 million votes for that, there was. Anyway. The vast majority of the 150 million Americans who voted, they want to get the vitriol out of our politics. We're certainly not going to agree on a lot of issues, but at least we can agree to be civil with one another. 
We have learned that President Biden seems to have adopted a strategy of being, as far as possible, everything his predecessor was not, and nothing his predecessor was. President Trump, you will recall, and not that he'd appreciate the extremely learned reference impending, often appeared to have adopted one famous Shakespearean lament as a program for government. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. We have learned that Biden, by way of contrast, does not appear to believe it a term of his employment that every citizen of his country, and indeed of the world, should be thinking about him at every damn minute of every damn day. History, faith, and reason show the way, the way of unity. We can see each other not as adversaries, but as neighbors. We can treat each other with dignity and respect. We can join forces, stop the shouting and lower the temperature. For without unity, there is no peace, only bitterness and fury, no progress, only exhausting outrage, no nation, only a state of chaos. We've learned that by the standards of the first 100 days, at least since people started caring about a president's first 100 days, circa the first term of President Franklin D. Roosevelt, Biden hasn't signed that many new laws. Just 11, as opposed to FDR's blizzard of 76. But Biden's 11 laws, though small in number, have been hefty in impact, most notably a $1.9 trillion post-pandemic rescue package. On his 99th day in office earlier this week, Biden proposed another $4 trillion investment in jobs, education and social care, and reminded that his administration has already made one kind of history. Anyway, thank you all. Madam Speaker, Madam Vice President, No president has ever said those words from this podium. No president has ever said those words. And it's about time. We've also learned that Biden appreciates that government bipartisan consensus may not presently be possible. He has signed 42 executive orders, more in the first 100 days than any president since FDR, though 19 of those were concerned with revoking 62 of the executive orders issued by President Trump. Come on, keep up. And we've learned that President Biden is proving a difficult target for his foes in politics, and perhaps more pertinently in America's seething conservative media, to land a hit on. With the previous Democratic president, they found it easy, for some completely unimaginable reason which we cannot begin to guess at, no, search us, we've got nothing, to depict Barack Obama as some sinister revolutionary intent on turning the United States into an Islamic socialist republic. We've learned that with Biden, the same critics are reduced to inventing demented balderdash about the impending abolition of hamburgers. That means you're only allowed to eat four pounds of red meat a year. That adds up to a burger a month. That's it. And the state-funded issuing of Vice President Kamala Harris's children's book, Superheroes Are Everywhere, to newly arrived immigrants. 
neither of which, to be clear, are things which are happening. But if we've learned one thing from President Joe Biden's first 100 days, it's that he appears to believe that the occupant of the Oval Office should be able to find better things to do with their time than conduct inane culture war bun fights. We've learned that he might even be serious about doing presidenting stuff. It's going to be quite an adjustment, and an adjustment with which we have learned certain American politicians are struggling. A few weeks back, Texas Republican Senator Ted Cruz took some time out from wondering who he hates most, his constituents or himself, to condemn President Biden as boring but radical. Honestly, if boring but radical isn't Biden's re-election slogan in 2024, someone is asleep at the switch. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, there. And on Tuesday's edition of The Globalist, we heard from Mark Morial, a former mayor of New Orleans and currently serving as president of the National Urban League, a civil rights organization that has long advocated for racial justice in the United States. He spoke to Monaco's news editor Chris Chermack about Joe Biden's first 100 days, how to bring equality to African-Americans and what cities need most to recover from the coronavirus pandemic. Joe Biden's victory was a remarkable victory. He probably had the broadest and widest coalition of anyone ever elected president. He carried 43% of the white vote, significant majorities in black, brown, and Asian communities. He carried significant numbers among older and younger Americans. It was a broad, and it was a decisive win. What comes along with it are significant high expectations. I think if you look at his first 100 days, He's made great progress, but he's got a significant roadblock in his way that's going to affect everything he wants to do. That significant roadblock is called the Senate filibuster. That's the roadblock, not the will of the people. All of his initiatives that he's put out there holds tremendous support among the American people. His recovery bill, tremendous support, infrastructure, police reform. It is only the politics of the right that stands as an obstacle. And it's not the voters on the right, it's politicians in Congress. So much about also tackling systemic racism in particular has to happen at the community level. You were, of course, mayor of New Orleans for many years. How has the challenge facing city leaders changed from when you were in office? The most material change from when I served in office was one, They've had four years of Donald Trump, which was basically a White House that was not supportive of of COVID, which has battered their budgets, caused millions of layoffs, forced them to shut down their economies. That challenge that they faced is unlike any challenge any group of mayors has faced in modern American history. It's like a continuous hurricane. It's like a weather event, a continuous snowstorm. It has no end no foreseeable end. And that has made being a mayor and being a governor especially challenging in these times. It was important that the recovery plan include money for cities and money for states. And I'll tell you why. For me, it's the value proposition. 
a year ago when they put the first recovery plan together, they rushed to bail out the airlines. They rushed to bail out the hotels. And then some of the same folks said that it was wrong to produce financial support for cities that hire policemen, firefighters, and teachers. I said, what kind of value proposition is this? You rush to bail out airlines and hotels, and guess what? They needed support. But then when it's about cities and states, you become sanctimonious. You start talking about wasteful spending. You revert to reactionary politics. I thought that that was so transparently disingenuous and so consistently inconsistent. In this crisis, we've had the most extreme partisanship, but it is to be blamed and assigned on one man, Donald Trump. Donald Trump architected it. Donald Trump executed it. Donald Trump engineered it, and he elevated it. Had he not elevated it, he'd probably be president today. You did touch on that the recovery plan provided finally that help for city leaders. So there too, I guess my question is, what's the next step? What's the next thing particularly important that you would look for from the federal government for cities at this point? We need two things. Cities need to protect the vote and democracy to protect the power of their voters. This entire assault on voting is directed at urban communities and how they turned out. Philadelphia, Milwaukee, Detroit, Atlanta, Phoenix in the last election. That's number one. Number two, we need an economic recovery plan that matches what happened in the New Deal. We need investment in infrastructure, community infrastructure. We need a broad, broad investment, which I'm confident would engineer a powerful, equitable comeback. And the third thing I would add is the dismantling of the system of mass incarceration, which has devastated these communities, policing, criminal justice reform. Let's focus on creating opportunity for people. We are at a moment of a new paradigm, a new approach. And I think there's a broad consensus in the country. I'm not going to say a universal consensus, but a broad consensus in the country to do those three things. So let me repeat. It is about protecting democracy for cities. It's about broad economic recovery and investment in infrastructure. And it's about the criminal justice system. Those are the three things that American cities need today. Mark Morial there in conversation with Monaco's Chris Chermack. Well, for Wednesday's installment of our series, we heard from Zach Wamp, a former Republican congressman from Tennessee. He's currently the co-chair of the Reformers Caucus, a bipartisan group of legislators brought together by a civil society group called Issue One. Congressman Wamp spoke to Monocle's news editor Chris Chermack about how the Biden administration and Congress can go about restoring trust in politics. Let me uh, say first... While we still have a long way to go in this fight and a lot of work to do in May and June to get us to July 4th, we've made stunning progress because of all of you, the American people. The president took office with some momentum on COVID and also some kind of cleanup responsibilities that he gets credit for, but they were going to happen anyway. 
And so that helped a little bit of the goodwill. I think the $1.9 trillion stimulus bill didn't help him. It helped the country in, in a certain sense, kind of bring closure to something that had been pending for eight or nine months. The fact that there wasn't any bipartisan effort there, you know, the, the bipartisan compromises from the group of 12 or whatever, they weren't considered. And then the Republicans in the Senate, which are still at a 50-50, they felt like they were stiff-armed by this administration. Once they knew they had the votes, including Vice President Harris breaking the tie in the Senate to do whatever the hell they wanted to, it was a partisan thing. And partisan things is what has gotten the country so divided. Something's wrong here when only one party, no one on the other side, and there's no effort to get bipartisan support. Well, what does that mean? That means that somebody's rigging the system to their advantage. That's the way people perceive this. So I'd say the first hundred days is mixed at best because the president had some goodwill that this is a new beginning, that a lot of Republicans, frankly, half the Republicans were really truthfully ready to move beyond Trump. Some of them wouldn't admit it publicly from fear of backlash, but half the Republicans in this country were ready to move beyond Trump. There are a lot of people in the party that want candidates to emerge that can take us more in the Reagan direction of the party instead of the Trump populist direction of the party. President Trump claims the election was stolen. I support strong state-led voting reforms. Last year's bizarre pandemic procedures must not become the new norm. On the question of where does the country go, the two-party system has really let down our country because the two-party system has almost hijacked, the two parties have hijacked our leaders and forced them to actually follow the party instead of even their own convictions or their state or their constituency, your constitutional oath of office is what should guide you always. So conservatives are really concerned about this and a lot of it is lost through populism run amok. And so I think the Republican party needs to reset in order for the country to reset. So the president going back to Biden, in a sense, he's captive to his own progressive passion in his party. The passion in the party is the progressive movement, but he's really not that guy. You can't change the government in a partisan way. You just can't do it. All good reforms, all major bills need bipartisan support so the country sees us working together. And it's been a long time since the country saw the Congress work together. I would argue the last major bipartisan piece of legislation was the Balanced Budget Act of 1997 with Gingrich and Clinton. It led to three consecutive years of a balanced federal budget. I was there. I was part of it. It was a major bipartisan effort. And I can remember Newt Gingrich coming and telling the Republican conference at the end of the day, after fighting for everything we believe, we have a constitutional obligation to work with the executive branch, no matter which party controls it, to forge a compromise. And that's what the Bipartisan Balanced Budget Act of 1997 was. It was Clinton and Gingrich hammering out a compromise. I can't remember any major bill like that since then, and that's 24 years ago. And the people right now, for a generation, have felt 
that the government is not working, that it is dysfunctional. We've seen it now for 20 consecutive years, grind down to a halt. We've seen the government shut down over and over and over again because they can't come together and compromise. We've actually seen blame become a political weapon instead of accepting responsibility. The American people do not believe the people in Washington any longer work together. And in order to restore confidence and trust, which is essential to our former government, they need to see members from both parties working together and putting the country's interest, the national interest above their partisan interest. Let me tell you, if you feed the narrative that it's all about red and blue and Republican and Democrat, and one side's always right and one side's always wrong, you are feeding the dysfunction. You're feeding the alienation. You're further separating the people from their duly owned government. One quote that I used is my quote for years and years and years is that neither party has an exclusive on integrity or ideas. I told you I grew up a Democrat. I became a Republican. I served for a long time. I worked with both sides. I got a lot done. I saw it work when the way it was supposed to work. And we have a big problem in this country because a whole generation now doesn't know the basics of civics, of how it's supposed to function. And so in their mind, it's just Democrats and Republicans fighting all the time. 24-7 news carries it all. You know, it's a big blame game and nobody accepts responsibility. And that is bad for America and therefore bad for the world. There is a crisis in confidence right now. And I'm telling you, we're a few election cycles away from just uh, all hell breaking loose, really, with the electorate, because people are still very, very unnerved. But I stay optimistic in that our country's been through even worse times. I mean, obviously, the Civil War is the grossest example, but the Great Depression, other really momentous times, the 60s, there was such unrest in this country and civil rights you know, all the way through the Kennedy assassination, Bobby Kennedy's particularly the second one. So we've gotten through more difficult times, but every time that we came through that, leadership emerged to pull together, to pull us out. So what's gotta happen? Leadership has to emerge. And I believe it's generation. I'm 63 and I left Congress 10 years ago. People have asked me for 10 years to run again and to serve again. And I tell them I would far rather my children serve than me. Why? Because the next generation is much more pragmatic, much more willing to work together, less brainwashed into their camps of the whole world is either red or blue and there is no working it out. And they know technology and how to deploy technology to solve problems. My generation and up has not done very well. The last 30 years is where the meltdown has taken place. So. All of those people, all due respect to the 80-year-olds and the 70-year-olds that are still in power, go home. Make room for the next generation. If we have a generational turnover, we have hope. We have the chance of coming together. We have the opportunity of pragmatic millennials and responsible young Americans to actually take control of their future. The greatest injustice of our time is what this generation is doing to the next generation in this country. Zach Wamp there. And to hear the full series, head over to our website. That's monocle.com forward slash radio. Now, during his speech to a joint session of Congress, President Joe Biden touched upon gun violence, calling the matter an American problem rather than a partisan issue.
Well, last week, the team behind the Foreign Desk dedicated their show to examining the United States and gun violence. Mass shootings, if we work off the common definition of four or more dead or injured in a single incident, occur in America on more days than not, with such frequency indeed that it usually requires a double-figure casualty count to make the news. Statistically, there are about 300 Americans alive right now who will be deliberately or accidentally shot dead within the next week. Another 400 or so will use a gun to take their own lives. So why hasn't anything substantial been done to change this? Much of the argument over guns in the United States centers around the Second Amendment of the Constitution, the one which affirms a citizen's right to bear arms. No organization has done more to uphold a fundamentalist interpretation of the Second Amendment than the National Rifle Association. Here's Frank Smith, the author of the NRA, The Unauthorized History, on the NRA's evolution from gentlemanly rifle fraternity to feral gun cult. Your Your Second Second Amendment rights are are under siege, siege, but they they will will never, ever ever be under siege as as long as as I The modern leaders of today's NRA falsely claim that the NRA was founded in support of the Second Amendment, and this is not true at all. The NRA was set up by two former union uh, army officers, one of whom had also served as a journalist and was a publisher on military affairs and the other was a rifle trainer, they established the NRA in New York City for the purpose of improving riflery, improving marksmanship among able-bodied men and active duty soldiers, first in the National Guard and then in the services, in order to better prepare U.S. troops in anticipation of future wars, most likely involving European powers. This was the eve of the Gilded Age. It was six years after the Civil War when the NRA was founded. And they were aware that the United States was coming into its own on the world stage and would most likely be involved or drawn into wars involving Europe very soon. And they wanted to make sure that American men, that American riflemen had the skills and training they needed to be able to perform well in any future conflicts. Thanks to you, the members and supporters of NRA, no national gun law has passed this year. It is not likely at this time that one will pass. If we will stand together, strong... Until the NRA had no position on gun control for its first 50 years, it started raising the concerns about gun owners in, uh, in the 1922 as the first editorial by the NRA that really flagged that. And then from the 1930s through the 1940s, the NRA supported gun control, never unconditionally. It was a qualified support. But the NRA, through these generations, provided a balancing test to balance the interest of gun owners versus the interest of public safety. And in 1977, the NRA underwent what is called the Cincinnati Revolt, which the modern leaders entirely deny ever occurred. Yet the father of that revolt is the only leader whose figure, whose image is on display in the National Firearms Museum inside NRA headquarters. His name is Harlan B. Carter. Any national gun law, no matter how innocent in appearance, no matter how simple it might be, presupposes a still further growth in a centralized, computerized gun control bureaucracy in Washington, D.C. And uh, so he is still revered 
demonstrating that the modern NRA, including Wayne LaPierre, who joined the NRA one year after the Cincinnati revolt, all stem from this radical uprising within the group that changed it forever from the nation's largest gun club into the nation's largest and most powerful gun lobby. Here's a message to every rapist, domestic abuser, violent criminal thug, and every other monster who preys upon women. Maybe you've heard the stories about millions of... The NRA has done a masterful job on its own terms of expanding its reach. And it did that by playing upon people's fears, by promoting the notion, would you rather be raped or would you rather have a gun to defend yourself? I'm the National Rifle Association of America, and I'm freedom's safest place. But this strategy of fear-mongering helped gain the NRA support throughout the throughout the country. And also, they managed to cultivate grassroots support across the nation among gun owners and others sympathetic to gun owners, which became their base, which is real, right? The strength of the NRA is, is, is in its purse to some degree, but its ideology by this point is much more important because they worked every different legislator throughout most of the 50 states, as well as in Washington, to bring legislators as well as elected judges over to their perspective. In addition to hiring people to write law review articles and put out other pro-gun information, including op-eds in major newspapers, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, all written by scholars who were receiving NRA funding, which they rarely, if ever, disclosed, as a way of communicating their message. And the NRA has done a tremendous job of organizing the largest single-issue movement in the nation for gun rights, and the gun reform movement really is late to the game and is really playing catch up now, which is why you're seeing all these measures for gun control in Congress just hitting a brick wall in the Senate and Biden all but abandoning any attempt to pass gun control under his watch, at least not now, while he's focused on things involving executive orders, which at the end of the day are temporary measures that won't make a major difference in the long run. I think the NRA is destined to go through a metamorphosis, second metamorphosis now, and I think it's going to come out a much weaker organization. But gun reformers shouldn't take too much solace in that, because the groups that are going to arise and become stronger are other gun rights groups, such as Gun Owners of America, which has long been more radical and more openly has had ties in the past with white supremacists and white power organizations. So I think the, the ideology of gun rights the religion of gun rights is stronger now than it's ever been, and that is what's going to survive, even if the NRA, which helped create it, may not live to uh, or may not endure to be able to see it through. So as uh, we set out this year to defeat the divisive forces that would take freedom away, I want to say those fighting words for everyone within the sound of my voice to hear and to heed and especially for you, Mr. Gore. From my cold, dead hands.
Frank Smith there, the author of the NRA, The Unauthorized History. And that was on last weekend's edition of The Foreign Desk. Still to come here on The Curator, we head to Slovenia for a tall story, examine the demise of the pop group and bottoms up as we stop off in Venezuela for a favourite cocktail recipe. Stay tuned. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. You're with The Curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle 24. I'm Carlotta Rubella. Our next highlight comes from the latest edition of Food Neighborhoods. For this week's show, Alberto Volmer, the CEO of the Venezuelan rum brand Santa Teresa, shares one of his favorite cocktail recipes. Hi, my name is Alberto Volmer. I'm the CEO of the Santa Teresa Rum Company based in Venezuela. It's a 225 years old company since the foundation of the Hacienda in 1796. Today I'm going to tell you about a cocktail that's called the Ruck. As many people here probably understand, Ruck is a rugby term. We use rugby as a vehicle to teach values in these prisons and with these gangs in Venezuela. And that's why we've given it this name. It's a very simple cocktail. So basically it's a short glass, a big ice cube, two measures of Santa Teresa 1796, one measure of sparkling water, and then just a swath of orange peel where you twist it inside the drink. You basically swipe the twist along the edge of the glass, and that is really important. And of course, you put the swath of orange peel into the drink, and you will really be surprised. It's extremely simple, but it's very surprising because then you really appreciate the liquid, the rum, It's a little diluted with the sparkling water. Of course, you've got the bubbles of the sparkling water. And as you dilute it, of course, what happens is that your taste buds open up to actually appreciate that unexpectedly dry, smooth and balanced texture of the liquid. And then the orange zest that you put in with that swath of orange peel, what it does is it somehow opens up your smell and it gives you like this three-dimensional sensation which is so surprising because it's a very simple cocktail, but it's a great experience. I really, really recommend it. Alberto Volmer there, the CEO of the Venezuelan rum brand Santa Teresa, on this week's episode of Food Neighborhoods. 
from one South American delight to another one here on The Curator as we hear from our very own Fernando Augusto Pacheco next. The pop frontman Adam Levine of the pop group Maroon 5 claimed in an interview a few weeks ago that the pop group is a thing of the past. Well, if you look at music streams in some parts of the world, like the US and the UK, you can see that he might be onto something, where it's solo songsters who regularly top the charts. Well then, who better to ask about whatever happened to the one song powerful pop group than Monocle 24's very own music man Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Is it game over for music groups? You'd have to believe yes if you've been reading the papers after the reactions to Adam Levine's comment that he felt there aren't any bands anymore, that he feels they're like a dying breed. In a way, I have to agree that looking at the charts, groups did lose their influence to solo artists. Although, it must be added that this is not the case across all countries. Just look at the rise and rise of K-pop bands such as BTS and Blackpink. But from the top 10 global artists in 2020, according to the IFPI report, only one was a band, and that was BTS. But I really don't think this is the end of bands. That would be a silly thing to say. What we are seeing instead is a move to more collaborations between solo artists. In fact, it is very hard reaching number one these days without a feature artist in your song. In the top 20 songs in the US this week, half of them are collaborations. Although not exactly bands, collaborations show that going purely solo is not exactly the solution for everyone. So Adam Levine might have exaggerated a bit, saying that bands are a dying breed. I love bands. These days I'm listening to a Japanese reggae band called Duns River, or the great French electro of both La Femme and L'Imperatrice. Or my old-time favorites, Kraftwerk, Spice Girls, and sorry Maroon 5, you're not on my list. From Monaco, I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Thanks, Fernando. You're with The Curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle 24, and I'm Carlotta Rebello. When lockdown struck, city dwellers across the globe found themselves stuck at home with a little more time on their hands and perhaps a little more attention to give. To this end, many decided that it might be time to acquire that furry companion they'd long dreamed of. But as the pandemic subsides and normal life returns, the worry is that these new pet owners might have a change of heart. Here on the front line in London is the CEO of Battersea Cats and Dogs Home, Peter Laurie. He sat down with Monocle's editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, to discuss how COVID-19 has impacted the organization's work. 
they started by talking about the boom in rehoming during the UK's first lockdown. Since the pandemic started back in March last year, we, we've seen an extraordinary increase in pet ownership across the UK. I think some figures suggest there's been as many as three million additional pets acquired by households across Britain. And as I think we start to emerge from the pandemic, people are going to want to start to return to their, their previous lives, perhaps. And our fear is that, that many of these pets may be given up and need to be rehomed. So here at Battersea, we are planning for that scenario, certainly, and we're, we're ready to help pet owners who, for whatever reason, uh, are no longer in a position to look after a, a dog or a cat. Now, I understand you're already seeing uh, an increase in dogs coming to you and you're, you're rehoming at unprecedented rates. Can you just give us an idea of the kinds of numbers of dogs that you're, and cats, of course, that you're dealing with? But also, is there any particular kind of dog that seems to be returned faster than others? Well, certainly uh, throughout the pandemic, we've seen very, very strong rehoming interest. So uh, in the week before lockdown last March, the 16th, the week of the 16th of March, uh, we rehomed more than 150 animals in, in that single week, which was probably our busiest week for rehoming in at least a decade. Since then, thousands of people have registered to rehome from us. And it's brilliant to see so many people coming forward and being open to give a, a rescue pet a second chance. We're still seeing high numbers of people looking to rehome an animal. We're obviously asking that people are patient and our promise is that a rescue pet is well worth the wait. But what we've also started to see in in the last few months is a slight increase in the number of pets being uh, relinquished. We haven't yet seen a surge in uh, relinquishment, but as I say, we're planning for that scenario. And we know, for example, from our own research, that around 40% of people who bought a puppy during the first lockdown last spring hadn't previously considered getting a pet. And we know that many now are likely to be struggling to cope with their new puppy. Uh, And we've started to see a small number of young dogs under six months of age come through our our gates. So we're bracing ourselves for a very busy uh, summer and and second half of this year. I know that it's been difficult to do home visits during the pandemic. How do you check up on, on, on people, you know, in the past, it's been a very scrupulous set of uh, tests and, and, and hoops that you need to jump through before you're allowed to take away an animal. Are you still able to do that at this time? We've had to adapt how we've worked during the pandemic. We, we want people to come to rescue. We want to make the rehoming process a, a smooth one and a very customer-centric process. During the pandemic, for example, we've started to introduce dogs and cats to prospective owners online over Zoom and other virtual channels. Uh, And when there were restrictions on members of the public traveling during the height of the lockdowns, we've been delivering dogs and cats to people's homes. So uh, the good news is that the government has allowed animal rescue centers to continue to operate through the pandemic. We've had to change how we've worked. We've had to uh, implement some new COVID secure protocols that we have been able to continue to to rehome dogs and cats. And that, of course, has enabled us then to, to bring in more animals that need our help as well. What's the average time that a dog or a cat looking to find a, a new place to call home would, would spend with you? Well, in normal times, before the COVID pandemic, a, a dog would typically be in our care for about a month, so about, about 30 days, uh, and a cat a little bit less than that, somewhere between 20 and 30 days. During the pandemic, of course, with such strong rehoming interest from members of the public, we've actually been able to find really great homes for our animals uh, even more quickly than that. So um, the average length of stay for a dog uh, is down now to closer to 20 days and 30. And similarly for cats, 
uh, their stays are a little bit shorter. And Peter, tell us finally, when you get to go home, is there a waggy tail waiting for you? Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, I think everybody who who works at Battersea and volunteers at Battersea is united in a uh, in a real passion for for dogs and cats and their welfare. And uh, I'm very lucky. I've got a, a pet greyhound at uh, home with me, a dog called Wilson, who of course I adopted from Battersea. Uh, last year and uh, he's a wonderful companion he's very child friendly with my two young children and he's actually he's a very lazy dog uh, he likes to sleep on the sofa most of the time and then have the odd sprint around the garden greyhounds are wonderful pets uh, i'd recommend them to, to everyone and rescue dogs and cats generally are, are, are the best that was monocle's editor-in-chief andrew tuck in conversation with the ceo of battersea cats and dogs home peter laurie Next up, it's time for a tall story. This particular tall story is taller than most because it concerns a chimney, Europe's tallest to be precise. The Terbolia chimney is 360 meters high and served a power station in what used to be Yugoslavia. When that closed down in 2018, the chimney's future in modern-day Slovenia looked uncertain, but a country boasting some of the world's best climbers soon discovered another use for the structure. Monocle's man in Slovenia, Guy Deloni, tells us more. When you mention Terbolia to people in Slovenia, they'll think of one of the three national icons which hail from this mining town in the Sava Valley. Firstly, there's the world's top-ranked male road racing cyclist, Primoz Roglic. Then there's this. Yugoslav art-punk pranksters Leibach put their hometown's industrial rhythms into their music, and although they're now firmly ensconced as Slovenian national treasures, they still take enormous glee in subjecting audiences to their terrifyingly Teutonic versions of popular toe-tappers. In contrast, the other world-famous product of Terbolia doesn't utter so much as a grunt, but then it doesn't have to. When you're 360 metres tall, you tend to stand out, even if you don't have much to say. And without the Terbolia chimney, perhaps Leibach would have lacked the inspiration, which eventually led to them performing a quite extraordinary version of The Sound of Music in North Korea in 2015. My heart wants to be But I digress. This is a tall story, which means we're here to focus on the awesome industrial infrastructure which towers over the Sava Valley in the centre of Slovenia. Unlike Primoz Roglic and Leibach, the chimney never left Terbolia, but it remains a remarkable sight. It seemed even more remarkable when the stack was completed in 1976. It wasn't just the tallest structure in Slovenia, but in the whole of Yugoslavia. And more impressive still, it was, and still is, the tallest chimney in Europe. But there's a problem. The purpose for which the chimney was constructed no longer exists. And the question dangling vertiginously above it is, what becomes of a smokestack when there are no fires below? Rewinding to the time of its construction, its purpose was clear. Yugoslavia was still in the socialist dream world of the Tito era, and in Terbolia, now there was a towering symbol that the country could compete with anywhere else in Europe. 
The entire construction process took the best part of two years, but the chimney itself went up quickly at the rate of three metres per day. International experts joined the effort to ensure the structure was built to last, a sensible precaution given Slovenia's history of seismic activity. As well as signalling Yugoslavia's status to the world, the chimney served a purely practical purpose. Its height was the key to funnelling pollution from Tobolia's coal-fired electric power station up and out of the valley. It's testament to the quality of its construction that the chimney has outlived not just Tito, but Yugoslavia itself. And yet, Slovenia's independence led to turbulent times for state-owned assets, and the industries which had gathered in and around Turbolia were no exception. By the start of the last decade, it was becoming obvious that time was running out for Turbolia's coal mine, which dated back to the 19th century, and tolerance for polluting industries and the infrastructure which served them was also on the wane. Eventually, that meant the end for the power station. The chimney belched its last in 2016, before the power station was officially closed two years later. I first saw the chimney in video form during the 50th anniversary edition of the Ljubljana Design Biennial. There was a segment dedicated to reimagining Tobolia. The curators had given it the apposite title, After Utopia. Along with a film of former miners taking part in a dance performance, there was a drone shot video of the town's signature structure. It zipped up, up and over the top of the chimney before mercilessly pointing the camera down towards the ominous circular black abyss. My hands are sweating just at the thought. The graffiti visible at the top of the chimney reveals that some are not nearly so acrophobic. In fact, a quick internet search will turn up a frankly petrifying video of a Romanian daredevil calmly walking around the rim while juggling three peaches. A stumble wouldn't bring instant death. He kindly demonstrated that it took 15 seconds for a peach to hit the ground. Perhaps fed up of freelance thrill-seekers, the chimney's custodians recently allowed it to become an official climbing venue. They created the world's tallest and most challenging artificial climbing wall on the outside of the structure, and to test it out, they called on another Slovenian icon, Janja Gornbret. She's just 21 years old, but she's already a multiple world champion in rock climbing and the hot favourite to take gold when the sport makes its Olympic debut in Tokyo. Her partner, Domen Skofitz, is also an international competitor, and he joined her in an assault on a very unusual kind of summit. It took them 11 hours to make it to the top. A few days later, they gave it another go and cut four hours off their previous effort. Just watching was exhausting, terrifying and awe-inspiring in roughly equal measures. The course was specifically set for the two elite climbers, and the film of their effort makes it clear that this is no place for amateurs. But it does offer an intriguing idea for the next chapter in this tallest of stories. Even though its original purpose has gone, perhaps the Tobolia chimney still has a future. Monaco's Guy Delaney there for this week's edition of Tall Stories. 
Our final highlight of the show comes from the latest edition of Confect Corner, Monaco's sister podcast. On this month's show, Sophie Grove, Gillian Tobias and Marcella Palak are joined by the power duo behind the boutique fashion brand Colville. Their ethos is rooted in expressing the feelings and values of contemporary women with sustainability and repurposing in sharp focus. Founded in 2018 by Molly Malloy, the former design director at Marnie, and by Lucinda Chambers, previously the fashion director of British Vogue. Here's part of their conversation. I think it's increasingly important that people know who who have made their clothes and where they've come from and the story that, that each piece has. And we've kind of grown with that as well. It was something that we started off working with a tribe in northern Colombia that made the bags for us, the cylinder bags. And we sold, I think, 35 in our first collection. And the woman that we liaise with, who liaises between ourselves and the, and the tribe's women, said, you know, it's great. These women are so grateful. These 35 bags have kept a village eating, 16 families eating for three months. You know, she was like, thank you. And... I think for Lucinda and I, that felt incredibly good, especially after working in fashion for so long. And you realize that you can actually help somebody through what we do and what we're putting out into the world. I think that resonates so much with ourselves. And also you think it must resonate with other people. So we've kind of gone with the flow. And it's really interesting as well, working with these tribes. And now we're working in Mexico and Brazil that what's great is that we're what we produce is determined what by what they can produce and respecting their output and respecting their traditions. So, yeah, I think for us, absolutely, it's really important. Even even the clothes we make in Italy, not necessarily made by artisans, but the people that work in the factories. We've been to the factories. We know that it's fair trade. We know that the, the, um, the conditions are, are great and we work with really, really good factories. It's, it's important to be conscious about this. And, and I think people, people really respond to that. And I also think money, you know, is very, very hard earned now. People, you know, whether they decide to buy that handbag or that handbag is a huge investment. You know, it's a, cho- it's a real choice. I think more and more they kind of want to know, as Molly said, you know, they want to know the provenance of it. And we didn't do it like that. We didn't set out like that at all. And it's all our collaborations are kind of like Colville chance meetings. You know, they're like Molly met this woman on a beach and I sat next to this woman at lunch. And now we do rugs, you know, in uh, Dakar and, you know, as Molly said, the Colombian bag. So it's very organic how it happens. And it's really about people and people behind it. But I think you know, when you, you know, work very hard to earn your money, I think you want to know where that money is going to. And I think more and more increasingly to have something that is meaningful apart from just what it is, but where it's made and who made it is, it's just vital, really. We've loved sort of collaborating. It's a kind of meeting of, you know, craft and minds and then making that craft relevant to our audience. So that makes them relevant and I think, you know, we can do a lot of good good like that. I think it's a sort of two-way, it's totally a two-way street. You know, we love what they do. They love what we can bring them. And then let's meet and let's let's bring your craft out. And let's shine a light on it, you know? And that's, a, that's a, just such a wonderful, it's a fabulous thing to do, actually. 
I wanted to finish up with a question really to both of you. I mean, it feels so significant that two people with such an amazing um, history in, in magazines and also design should come up with Colville um, at this moment. But do you feel more generally that the fashion industry is really sincere about change and sustainability? And, and has there been a profound shift in the way this industry works more, more generally beyond what just you're doing? I think so. I think, I think what's brilliant about now is, of course, you know, the word sustainable is on everybody's lips because luckily the questions are being asked. And of course, like any industry, there'll be some people who say it's sustainable and it's possibly not. And I think there are some who really are committed. From Molly's and our point of view, you know, we research every fabric and we will choose fabrics over other fabrics, even though the cost is more punitive because it's more sustainable. And, and those questions are constantly, constantly asked. And I think from our very first collection, you know, we did upcycle things. So, but it wasn't because that was the buzzword and the, and the, and the phrase that everybody was using, but just because actually it came out of something like, oh my God, we really want these kind of amazing sleeves. And how do we do that when we want all the colors to be different? Let's buy vintage and cut them all up. And, and that just sort of grew and grew and grew. And it be, it's become a really big part of what Colville is. It's just another aspect of Colville that we've done right from the beginning. I think what's brilliant is that, you know, there is a light being shone now and we have to tread very carefully because also, you know, like the Uyghurs in China, you don't want, you know, punishment can't happen and the big guys are changing. And I think, you know, yes, these are very, very big tankers to turn around, but I think what's fantastic is there really isn't any place to hide anymore. And I think everyone is asking those relevant questions. And so there's been a huge seismic shift in the fashion industry about sustainability, about fast fashion, about, you know, disposing of clothes. So I think it can only gain traction and become more and more sustainable, hopefully, and relevant. Well, and that's all we've got time on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Sam Empey and presented by me, Carlotta Rebello. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monocle 24. Thank you for listening. <laughs>